Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Turn with me to your Bibles today to Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Today's sermon is a storm story, much like that TV series from days gone by, remember? Jim Cantori? No? Never watched the Weather Channel? Man, where uh, Brother Jim would entertain us with all kinds of tales of death and destruction, right? It's amazing the things we entertain ourselves with. Um, Well, Storm Stories was a reminder just how terrifying storms can be. I bet each of you has your own storm story, your own close call or near miss. Where are my blizzard of, was it, 78? Blizzard of 78, lots of you. Um, Others of you have had brushes with tornadoes or hurricanes or severe thunderstorms of various kinds. Uh, Those of you who lived out in the the Lakewood on the Green vicinity a couple years ago, we had kind of our own storm story out there. Interestingly, um, it's almost exactly a year ago, May 20th, 2022. Do you know what happened a year ago? Yeah, we had the, the, the city of Gaylord was hit by an EF3 tornado. That's no joke. That is a serious tornado that was on the ground for 22 minutes, crossed 16 miles, peak winds were around 150, caused great destruction. Here's a picture from uh, the Nottingham Forest Mobile Home Park, or what was left of it. Um, Two residents were killed, which seems remarkable to me that only two were. Uh, Many, many homes destroyed. Again, reminding us that storms can be powerful and very, very terrifying. And so it is in our passage today, Mark 4, 35 through 41. It's a story of a terrifying storm. So would you please stand with me as I read this short text? I got to be honest with you. When I started preparing a week ago, I thought, oh, this one's kind of short and it's kind of to the point. This one will be kind of easy. And it was anything but easy. There's a lot to unpack here in just a few verses. And so um, let me read the text to us today. Mark 4, 35 begins... On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for condescending to us, to stooping down to where we are and to our understanding of life experiences. We can relate to storms. We can relate to trials and tribulations. And God, as we see through the eyes of the disciples, then through the eyes of Jesus, this particular trial, 
God, would you teach us the proper response in the midst of our trials? Would you teach us to have a greater vision of who you are? God, we need your help. Please meet with us right now in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. All right, let's uh, take just a moment to put the passage into context. Most recently, we've looked at four parables. Uh, First of all, the parable of the sower, then the parable of the lamp, and then two together. We did the parable of the seed growing and the parable of the seed multiplying. Now today, we move on to four miracles. We're just going to cover the first of them, and um, which is Jesus demonstrating his power and authority over nature. And then in the coming weeks, we'll see Jesus demonstrating his power and authority over spiritual forces, over illness, and over death. And so we frequently say, hey, Mark, the gospel of Mark, is more about the works of Jesus than the words of Jesus. We've most recently spent time hanging out in the words of Jesus. Now the pendulum is swinging back to the works of Jesus, from four parables to four miracles. And so in today's miracle, the disciples will be tested by a tempest. They will be tested by a tempest. Now, how many of you like tests? Not even teachers. Not even teachers like the tests, all right? But they're necessary, are they not? I believe they are. They're necessary for our growth, and they are necessary for our learning. Why? Well, because tests, first of all, they measure how much we've learned. We need to measure. We need to know. But secondly, the tests themselves are even part of the learning process. We actually learn a lot through taking tests. My daughter's getting ready to take um, one of those official engineering tests that you take after college to get certified in engineering, and um, she had an eight-hour practice test yesterday. An eight-hour practice test is necessary to measure and know how you're doing, but at the same time, that eight-hour practice test also helped her to grow and to learn to be ready for that next test. And this is certainly true as it relates to our faith. Spiritual tests function to measure our faith and are themselves part of growing our faith. Spiritual tests function to measure our faith, to see how we're doing. They are also themselves part of growing our faith. Tests help us to grow. Without them, we would not grow spiritually as we should. You've heard iron sharpens iron. We need friction to be able to grow and take those next steps. It says in 1 Peter 1.6, In this you rejoice, and it's talking about trials. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, and I would argue it is necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's this saying? It's saying that our faith is so precious, it is so important, that it must be and will be tested from time to time, and this is ultimately for our good. All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. That includes our trials and our tests. And so the faith of the disciples is about to be tested by a tempest. They had just learned so much about the kingdom of God as Jesus taught them using parables. Now, 
It was time to see if they could apply some of what they had learned, specifically as it related to trust in Jesus. And this text on the test breaks down into two main parts. Part one, Jesus rebukes the storm, verses 35 through 39. And then part two, Jesus rebukes his disciples. So let's look at the first of these, Jesus rebukes the storm. Um, Verse 35, it simply begins, on that day. Now, that raises the question, which day? Which day are we talking about? Well, if we go back to the preceding verses, we find that Jesus and his disciples had just finished a very, very busy day. You remember that the press of the crowds was so great that what did Jesus have to do? Get in a boat to teach because the crowds were pressing in on him so much. And it was from that boat that he taught those four parables that we just studied. And so in Jesus' humanity, how do you think Jesus felt at the end of that day? He's tired. He's tired. And so it says in the second half of verse 35, when evening had come, he said to the disciples, hey gang, let us go across to the other side. Now the other side, of course, refers to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was teaching near Capernaum from the boat off the shore. Now he's saying, let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which as you know, is a relatively small body of water, 13 miles long, seven miles wide, 150 feet deep, 150 feet deep. Now it's important to note here for our story today, there are no major cities on the Eastern shore. No major cities on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, which for us in western Michigan reminds us of the eastern side of the state, right? No major cities? That's a joke. That's a joke. It's fascinating to me, as long as I've lived in Michigan, how few times I've actually been to the east coast of the state. So there were fewer people on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. It was also inhabited. Those who were there tended to be Gentiles. that Jews typically avoided. And so it would be the perfect place for Jesus and his disciples to run away to go and get some rest. But it was also the perfect opportunity for a test, a test by a tempest. For you see, this body of water was known for its sudden storms. The Sea of Galilee, surrounded by mountains, It is the lowest freshwater lake in the world, 680 feet below sea level. And when cool air from the mountains would come down and collide with the warm air of the lake basin, storms were suddenly produced. And sometimes they were quite violent. Kind of not altogether different, I don't think, from Tornado Alley in our country. And so what we have in our country, we've got kind of the cool air from the Rocky Mountains. You've got the warm, moist air from the Gulf of Mexico. When those air masses collide, what happens? It becomes very stormy. It becomes very stormy. So it was this unstable environment in the Sea of Galilee that Jesus and his disciples set sail. And they did so in a boat that looked something like this. Not the most stable looking vessel, is it? Um, but what it was, was 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and it could hold up to 15 people, which made it the perfect size vessel for Jesus and his disciples as they set out to cross the lake to get some rest. Verse 36 then goes on to say, and leaving the crowd, they took with them in the, they took him with them in the boat, and there's this phrase, just as he 
was. I love that phrase, just as he was. Now, what's the significance of that, do you think? I believe it's once again meant to highlight the humanity of Jesus. That when Jesus came to earth, he was in fact fully God and fully human. He did not just appear to be human, he really was. And so he really got hungry. He really got thirsty. He really got tired. And on the cross, this is the important part, he really bled and he really died. And so here at the end of this long day, they took Jesus into the boat just as he was thoroughly exhausted and needing rest. But the rest would be short, as we know, because it says in verse 37, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. In the Greek, when it says a great storm, it's a megastorm. A megastorm, the kind that Jim Cantore would make a show about. And in Matthew's account of the story, it uses the word in Greek, seismos. Seismos, what does that make you think of? An earthquake, seismic earthquake. So um, this indicates that there was this violent upheaval of the sea. And so this is an earthquake megastorm that we're dealing with here in which the boat is filling rapidly with water. And what is the natural outcome of a boat that fills with water if left unchecked? It's going to sink. It's going to sink. And how deep is that Sea of Galilee? At its deepest, 150 feet. And so the lives of Jesus and the disciples very much seem to be in parable. Now, where's Jesus? Verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Something interesting here. This is likely an example of the influence of Peter on Mark's gospel, because remember that Mark himself was not an eyewitness to these events. Mark was not in the boat, okay? Mark was not a part of those disciples. And so it's widely believed, again, that Peter was Mark's source in writing the gospel. And so here in verse 38, we have details that only an eyewitness would have observed. And those details here from Peter, likely, include that Jesus was in the stern of the boat. He was laying on a cushion, These were details most likely communicated by Peter, the eyewitness. And what Peter saw was an exhausted Jesus, sound asleep. But note this, this is important. Jesus not only slept because he was tired, but because he was at peace. Even in the midst of the earthquake megastorm, in the words of Stephen Cole, He says, the Lord's sleep was not only the sleep of weariness, it was also the rest of faith. You ever stop to think about how many things Jesus could have been worried about? I mean, his life was being threatened at this point in his ministry. His family thought he was crazy. His disciples weren't getting it, largely. And then primarily looming in the distance in the future was a hill called Golgotha where he would be crucified. He knew it to be so. Jesus had a lot that he could have been worried about, could have been anxious about, and yet here he is sleeping the rest of faith in the stern on a cushion during an earthquake megastorm. Exemplifying the words of Psalm 4.8, the psalmist says, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, 
For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Well, the disciples finally reached the point they couldn't let Jesus sleep any longer. They were too terrified. And so it says in the second half of verse 38, And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Those words were really more of a criticism, weren't they, than a call for help? They're, in fact, an accusation against Jesus. They are, in fact, questioning the very heart of Jesus. And it got me thinking, aren't you glad that your worst moments are not recorded in Scripture? The way that the worst moments of the disciples are recorded in Scripture for everyone to read about for centuries later, uh, the disciples must be looking down on us today and knowing that this passage is coming at First Baptist in Cadillac and like, oh, no, not the storm story. We're so embarrassed. But I love the fact, as I bring up from time to time, the brutal honesty of Scripture. That we don't see these disciples as perfect people who never fail, who never miss, miss it, who never... They're like us. We fail. We don't get it. We do it wrong, just like they do. So what does Jesus do in verse 39 when the disciples, so in this cringeworthy moment, question his heart? Verse 39 says, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. So, how do you stop an earthquake megastorm on the Sea of Galilee? Well, if you're Jesus, you speak to it. You use words. Like when he spoke the universe into existence. You command it, peace, be still. That, that phrase, be still, in Greek literally means be muzzled, like the muzzling of a hostile animal that's bent on attack. It is the same word, interestingly, that Jesus used in dealing with a demon in Mark chapter 1, where it said in verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And so the common verbiage between 125 with the demon and then chapter 4 dealing with the storm um, is caused some to think that um, the, a demon was actually behind the storm, which would have been very consistent with the cultural narrative of the day where they believed that demons were in fact the cause of such storms. But whether or not there was a demon behind the storm, Jesus silenced, he muzzled it when he spoke to it. Look at verse 39. Second part. I love this. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. The wind ceased. Now, how do storms typically subside? When we've got a good thunder boomer that comes across northern Michigan, um, does it all just stop at once? No, I mean, you kind of have the apex of the storm, and then it kind of gradually tends to end. You know, the heavy rain turns into medium rain, and then light rain sprinkles, and then it's finally done. It's gradual, but not here. So here, Jesus causes the storm to instantaneously cease. And there was an instantaneous great calm. Fulfilling the words of the psalmist in Psalm 89.9, it says, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Only Jesus. 
John MacArthur had an interesting quote on this when he said, perhaps nowhere else in Scripture is the humanity of Christ more dramatically juxtaposed with his deity. The one sleeping in the stern of the boat, exhausted after a day of intense ministry, is the very one who would awaken to stop the massive storm with a word. Now that is an amazing display of both his humanity and his divinity all at once, is it not? So that's that first section of our storm story where the disciples are tested by a tempest, Jesus rebukes the storm, the second, the second section is much shorter, but it's very, very profound. Because here, Jesus rebukes his disciples. Look with me at verse 40. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Let's take a moment to grade the test of the disciples, shall we? Um, what grade would you give them? You're afraid to say, aren't you? I think they get enough. Of all people, Jesus' own disciples should have had faith in him. They should have trusted him, even in an earthquake megastorm. They'd seen the miracles up to this point. They'd heard the teaching. They'd lived with him day after day. And yet when the test came, instead of having faith, what did they have? They had fear. I like what Dave Guzik said about this. He said, the storm could not disturb Jesus, but the unbelief of his disciples disturbed him. The results of the test revealed that Jesus still had a lot of work to do with his disciples, but watch this. This is where I get encouraged today. Um, although Jesus rebuked them, he didn't give up on them, did he? He called them out, he's going to correct them, but he's not going to quit on them. Jesus would continue to gently but firmly do whatever would be necessary to grow his disciples. And this would, in fact, include periodic tests like this one that they had on the Sea of Galilee. Well, how did the disciples respond to this correction and as they tried to process and reflect on what had just happened? Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Why were they filled with great fear? Well, it's one thing to have a terrifying storm outside the boat, right? What do they got inside the boat now? Almighty God. More powerful, more authoritative than the wind and the waves. Greater, more powerful than an earthquake megastorm. Here he is sitting right next to them. You see, one of the things that the tempest revealed, and it was so necessary for them and so necessary for us, was that the disciples still didn't really understand who Jesus was. But this test would help them to grow in their understanding, and it gave them a much more appropriate sense of awe. That's something we've got to recover, church. Awe of who God is, the fear of the Lord. I, th I think for far too many of us in, in recent decades, we've made Jesus too tame, too domesticated. He's our buddy. He's our friend. And he is. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. That's true. But at the same time, the part that we have to recover is that he is almighty God. And he is holy, holy, holy. What did Isaiah say when he came face to face with the presence of almighty God? What was his response? 
woe is me. Woe is me. We don't have enough woe is me experiences when we see it come into contact with the presence of God. We treat him too casually. We take him for granted. This test helped the disciples to grow in their understanding of the transcendence of Almighty God, how big, how powerful, how holy. It gave them a much more appropriate sense of awe. Jesus was not just a prophet, not just a teacher. He was God. And as it says again in Psalm 89, 8, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And I'm sure that that psalm that I'm sure the disciples were familiar with, it took on a fresh new meaning as they had a fresh new sense of awe for Christ who sat now in the boat with them. So in the storm story where we see the disciples tested by a tempest, Jesus rebukes the storm, Jesus rebukes his disciples. Let's finish out with application. How should we then live? I believe there are three questions in the text. If you look through the text, there are three questions which are asked. The questions are questions we need to ask today. The first question is this. Do you not care? Do you not care? Who asked that question in our story? The disciples. Who did they ask the question of? Jesus, verse 38. They awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Again, this was a cringeworthy moment where the disciples questioned the very heart of Jesus. And if we're honest, we do that, don't we? Jesus, don't you care? Don't you see? Are you asleep? When we go through the storm, we ask, Lord, do you not care? Jesus, do you not care that I've received that diagnosis this week? That my child is sick? That my marriage is falling apart? That I have no money? That I want to give up? Lord, don't you care? I wonder what, what storm are you presently experienced that causes you to want to ask Jesus, Lord, do you, do you not care? 1 Peter 5, 7, it answers the question. It says that we are to cast all of our anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. How do we know for sure that he cares? How do we know for sure? Well, because it says in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love. He shows his care for us. He demonstrates it in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so any doubts that we have about whether or not God cares were settled on the cross where Jesus took our place. He took our punishment, where God's wrath was poured on him. And so be assured today that the answer to that question, Lord, do you not care, is most emphatically, oh, he cares more than you realize, more than you know, more than you can fathom. He cares. He loves you so very much. Well, then why the storms? Well, because one of the hard truths about storms is that, and this is, this is hard, the storms we face in this life actually show that he cares. Do you know that? 
The storms that we face in this life actually show that he cares. Now, how could that possibly be? Storms can be painful. Storms can be very, very hard. I know the storms that some of you are going through right now, and my heart grieves for you. They're so difficult. So how can it be that the storms we face in this life actually show that he cares? Because it is in the storms that we learn who Jesus is and how to trust him. It is in the storms that we learn who Jesus is and how to trust him. It is in our suffering that we learn to truly know and experience Christ personally. What did the Apostle Paul say in Philippians 3.10? He says, I want to know Christ. That was his heart's desire. I want to know Christ more than I want anything else on the earth. I want to know Christ. But listen to what comes with knowing Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, but also participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. What do I take away from this? To truly know Christ, to do more than just know about him, but to truly know him personally and experientially, it requires of us to go through storms with him that we might know him personally. And this is for our good. So therefore, it is actually evidence that he really does care for us. Pastor Brian Bill, he said this, we learn most about Christ when we are in crisis. We learn most about Christ when we are in crisis. If we were to stop here and just go around the room and have a testimony service, a time for you sharing where you learn the most about Christ, when was it? It's when you went through a hard time, when you went through a storm, isn't it? That's when your faith was required to be faith. That's when you had to step out and say, I trust you, Jesus. Anybody can have faith when the sea is calm, right? But is it really faith at that point? So that's question number one. Do you not care? Question number two is, why are you so afraid? This was asked by Jesus of the disciples in verse 40. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Again, such a contrast between Jesus in the storm and the disciples in the storm. Jesus slept the sleep of faith in the stern on a cushion. It reminds me of that remarkable story of Peter in the book of Acts when he was in prison. Do you remember that one? Acts chapter 12, verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to Peter, and a light shone in the cell. He, <laughs> he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. How I love this, that Peter was so deep in the sleep of faith in prison, chained to two guards, that an angel, just whispering to him, wasn't going to wake him up, had to strike him, hit him in the side to get him to wake up. I want to be like that, don't you? So at peace, regardless of the storm, regardless of the circumstance, that you'd have a hard time waking me up. I'm not there by any means. Now, please note, this is not because we're in denial about the reality and the severity and the ferocity of the storm. We don't deny that. The storms of life are very real and they are very painful. 
But because I have Jesus with me in the storm, I can be full of faith. He will see me through the storm. Amen? And because of that, we do not need to fear. Another example, the testimony of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Three young Hebrews thrown into the storm of the fiery furnace. Were they alone? No, they were not alone. There was another in the fire with them. As the, as the song says, there'll be another in the fire standing next to me. There'll be another in the waters holding back the seas. And should I ever need reminding how good you've been to me, I'll count the joy come every battle because I know that's where you'll be. You want to be where Jesus is? He's in the storm. Now, it should be noted that this is, this is hard. I mean, we, we typically pray, God, take away the storm, right? Take it away. Nothing, there's nothing wrong with praying that. However, it should be noted that Jesus took the disciples through the storm. He took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through the fire. This, how did the psalmist pray? Psalm 23, through the valley of the shadow of death. Meaning that Jesus does not promise to deliver us from the storm, but he absolutely promises to be with us and take us through the storm. And as long as he is with us, we need not fear. So, do you not care? Why are you so afraid? Third question, who then is this? Who then is this? This was asked by the disciples in verse 41. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And truth be known, this this really is the main point of the passage. It's right here. Yes, it is important to know that Jesus cares. Yes, it is important to know that Jesus will be with us through the storms. But I would argue that those are probably secondary points to this main point of the passage, which is this very question, Who then is this? And it is connected back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark's thesis statement, where he asserts, hey, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All of Mark's gospel comes back to this. Say, this, this is my, my support for this thesis that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In this passage about Jesus having authority and power over nature, over the storm, is one of the key proofs of this thesis. Who else can command wind and waves? Nobody. Only Jesus. Only Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. As it says in Proverbs 30, verse 4, Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. In church, the great blessing. We know, don't we? We know his name is Jesus. Who then is this? It's the most important question you will ever be asked. Who then is this? And it requires an answer from every human being. Every single person must answer this question. What is your answer? Amen. 
If Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God, the one who commands the wind and the waves, does this reflect your life? Are you living accordingly? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? And if this question is unsettled in your life today, I invite you to settle it right now. Because we are not guaranteed, not even tomorrow, we're not even guaranteed the next moment. As it says in Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, believe is more than just, yeah, I believe that happened. I believe Jesus was a person. I believe he existed. That's not the kind of belief we're talking about here. Believe means to surrender your life to the one who commands the wind and the waves. To allow him to have his rightful place on the throne of your heart where he rules and reigns. And that is only possible because Jesus died on the cross for your sins, to reconcile you to God Almighty, enabling him to be on that throne of your life. Is that you? Do you believe in this Jesus in this way? And so, three questions. Do you not care? Why are you so afraid? And who then is this? Which of these questions is most personal for you today? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for these questions, and I thank you that they are not questions without answers, but you have answered loud and clear. And so, God, I pray for those this morning who are, are struggling with... They're struggling with really knowing that you care. God, would you wrap your loving arms around them and remind them that, oh, how you love them. You love them so much that you died for them. God, for those who are wrestling with the question of why are you so afraid, God, Satan is the author of lies and he is also the author of fear. God, we rebuke Satan and his lies and his fears in Jesus' name. They have no place in our lives. God, would you replace our fear with faith and cause us to live brave, courageous lives, not because we're brave and courageous, but because we have you. And then lastly, God, for any who have not settled the question of who then is this, may today be the day of salvation. May be, today be the day that they turn from their sins and turn to you alone and that they put you on the rightful place of the throne of their lives that you would rule and reign, that they would surrender themselves completely to you and that they would follow you wherever you lead all the days of their lives, all the way through to eternal life with you forever and ever and ever. So God, settle these issues in our hearts today. Cement them. Cause us to be people of bold and courageous faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.